All right, so Ruby on Rails podcast, Jeffrey Grossenbach here with part of the development team of Microplace, uh, found at microplace.com. Scott Brown, Julio Santos, and Mandar Gokhale. So we're here in a uh, Starbucks, keeping it real, uh, right down in San Francisco. But check uh, out, what is Microplace? Well, uh, Microplace is a website uh, that... I guess probably the easiest way is just to sort of say our mission statement is okay. as easy as that might be. But Microplace uh, allows um, everyday and people to make investments in the world's working poor. So it's a website that right now is primarily geared towards, well, in fact, exclusively at the moment, geared towards uh, investors in the United States uh, to allow them to come and actually make an investment. It's a real security um, that you uh, make an investment in and earn a return. It's not a very competitive return right now. Uh, it's uh, you know around three uh, percent, but there's also a social impact that it's having as well. So the idea is that um, you might take uh, some funds out of a low yield investment that you currently have, maybe a CD or interest bearing savings account that's maybe giving four or five percent and take some of those funds and invest them in Microplace, you're still earning a return, but at the same time, you're, uh, the funds you've invested are going to support microfinance organizations around the world and help to lift people out of poverty. So the microfinance has definitely uh, gotten a lot of press, even in just the last uh, few months or years, but it's been around for quite a while, and I think... This year, the winner of last year, last the year, the Nobel Peace Prize. Prize. Yeah. Okay, it was nice timing. I actually saw him on the Colbert Report yeah. last week. That's right. And he's in town. Well, you saw yeah. yesterday, Mata, right? He's in town now. Yesterday. Mohammed Yunus. Yeah. He was speaking at the Commonwealth Club yesterday. So. But Microplace is, is kind of a different approach on that because many of the microfinance organizations out there are just purely charitable. As I heard it, one of the founders of eBay had a lot of really believed in microfinance and also believed that it should be uh, set up this way to provide a, a uh, you know, be an actual investment for the people providing money. Uh, why, do you, why did it go in that direction? Well, um, so first off, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Piero Midiar, the founder of eBay, uh, has been a proponent of microfinance now for, uh, for some time. And uh, he does uh, believe that the most effective way to promote microfinance is uh, is to do it as a commercial endeavor. Um, so you know the the uh, theory there is that if it's a if it's a for profit uh, endeavor, if you do this as a business, uh, that it's going to grow in a much more robust way. And what's interesting is microfinance organizations around the world right now. Some of them are nonprofits. Some of them are non-governmental organizations, NGOs that are purely charitable-based, or they work on grants or what, what have you. But there's a large, very significant portion. I don't know the exact percentage, but many, many microfinance organizations do operate as businesses. They operate like a bank. They do have a profit margin. They do have operating costs that they and, and they're self-sufficient that way. So I think there are a couple of different models. They're, that aren't necessarily competing. One's not necessarily better than the other. I think they work in different environments in different ways. But you have this sort of charitable approach where you'll have an NGO or a microfinance organization that works 
uh, through grants or, or, or uh, government sponsorship uh, that, that, is not, that isn't a profitable model. And you have some microfinance organizations that operate as a business, and they're self-sufficient, and they use their own uh, profits from the, the loans that they give to, uh, to, grow, to cover their operating costs and grow. So right now, you know, with what we're doing, you have, um, in terms of allowing Americans, people in the United States who get involved in microfinance, um, if you were a very high net worth individual, someone like Pierre Omidyar, uh, for a long time now, you would, you would have been able to participate because as an institutional investor, you could go to a large uh, fund, you know, uh, in the U.S. or in Europe or, or in Africa or, or Southeast Asia that's working with microfinance organizations and make an investment. But as you know, an everyday ordinary person, there really hasn't been a vehicle to do that. So Kiva has you know got started a couple of years ago, um, more as a sort of a cha the charitable model, um, and Microfi Microplace was started last year, sort of along the lines of a, of a we're ours is a, a, a profit driven model. Um, it's a very small profit you know margin, but. Uh, uh, ours is sort of that uh, the the business uh, approach as opposed to the charitable approach. Now the site itself that people can go to and and sign up and uh, register, maybe even track their their investments, is written in Ruby on Rails. Why did you choose to uh, use Rails for that? Well, uh, uh, when I got uh, started at Microplace, um, it was an absolute you know, uh, startup um, uh, in endeavor with, within uh, eBay. Uh, you know, there was no technology team behind it already. Uh, and so I was brought on to, to sort of, you know, kick that process off. And so one of the first things I did was look at, you know, begin thinking about what technology stack that we were, we were going to use. And my background is in Java and, and .NET. And so I, you know, started looking at those first because it's what I had experience in. And most recently, I did .NET development, so I kind of knew where, you know, with ASP.NET and Microsoft's offering, you know, what the state of that world was. It had been a few years since I'd done serious Java web development, so I went and looked at, uh, you know, Spring and, and, and Hibernate and the cool things that are going on in, in the Java world, and, um, it, and you know, it felt very heavyweight and overwrought for the... Uh, for the, the problem that we need to solve, the, the, what we needed to accomplish in terms of building this this, this website and the systems behind it, um, it uh, you know it's it's not a simple problem that we have. You know, it's not a trivial site. In, in fact, I would just point out in terms of the systems that we built. If you go to microplace.com and you, and you make an investment and you look at what's on the site, you're really only seeing about 20% of, of the systems that we built because we have lots of partners that Microplace works with in terms of the funds, that, uh, the securities that are issued, managing those, the microfinance organizations, and then publishing information to the site. Uh, we have a lot of regulatory and compliance standards that we've had to adhere to. And so uh, we've really uh, had to build... Uh, significant amount of back-end systems to support the site. So it's, again, not trivial, not a simple problem, but uh, still, it felt like, you know, pretty clear what we needed to do in terms of building the site, and uh, again, the Java and, and Microsoft offerings felt really heavyweight, and, and uh, so uh, I've, I've done some Python development in, in my career uh, several years ago, and so I started looking at what 
was new in the Python world and, and, and Django specifically and, and taking a look at that. I really like Django a lot. Yeah, it's got some nice features. And of course, I've you know just been hearing, had been hearing you know, Ruby on Rails, Ruby on Rails, Ruby on Rails for uh, you know the, the, the year prior to that. Um, and uh, from friends and just from you know the, the colleagues in, in the industry in general. So of course, I had to take a look at Rails. Uh, and really, for me, um, the, that's, the decision came down to either Django or Rails because the, the approach that's being taken, I think, with, with these sort of lean, uh, I think of them as pragmatic frameworks, right, uh, is, uh, is exactly what I was looking for. Um, you know, give me, give me the right tools to do the job that I'm trying to do. I mean, you know, when we're building a website, we, do, we try to solve many of the same problems. Uh, you know, we've, we've done these things a hundred times, you know. Uh, the, the fact that I didn't have to begin building another data abstraction layer to bridge my object model to my database, I mean, that, you know, that's, that seems, I mean, it's, it seems simple now that it's been done and we're working with it. It seems like a, a simple idea, but it was a huge buy. That's probably buy. just 40% of development time, so that's a significant gain because... At least in Java world, you spend a lot of time playing around with Hibernate and building your dial layer and you know, so managing sessions and managing your database connectivity. All that comes for free. So we saved a lot of time. Time was a premium because we had to build quickly and launch quickly. So for me, one of the most uh, interesting things about Rails, uh, now it's just common sense, but at the time for me it was really magical to me, was the fact that you could write functional tests Almost the same way I used to write unit tests in my previous life, you know, doing Java and JSP kind of J2E kind of stuff. And uh, I could write this, you know, functional tests in a couple lines, right, and make it run like it, uh, like it's a unit test. So that was uh, fantastic to me. So uh, in <clears throat> in making that decision between Rails and, and Django. Um, Really, I felt like Django would have been <clears throat> just a, as, as good of a decision to make. <clears throat> but there, with all the buzz and interest around the Ruby on Rails, I felt like um, that uh, we would probably get a lot of, um, <clears throat> of benefit and value out of, out of that in terms of tools that we're going to... So, so one of the, the, the factors that went into the decision was this was... Um, this is around October, November of 2006, and we were looking at a launch sometime mid to late uh, 2007. So, you know, one of the, 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 the things I was looking at was what is going to be happening over that, you know, seven, eight, ten months that we're going to be developing this site. And just looking at all the activity that was going on in the Ruby on Rails community, I thought, okay, well, you know, the production environment options that we have are going to stabilize, you know, and probably be optimized. Um, uh, you know, Mongrel and, and, and those sorts of tools, uh, just as well as you know the the core library and the and the tools and auxiliary uh, libraries that, that are, are part of the the community. And so that's one of the things that it was the community and the broad based community support that Rails has has seen was one of the factors that uh, led to, to choose Rails over over Django. Now you said that like eighty percent of the back of the. Entire system is are these back end systems in, interfacing yeah. to other financial institutions and things like that. Are those more Java based and you're using web services to connect, or is a lot of that in Ruby as well? When we at this, you know, again early on in the project when we were deciding what technologies to use, even after we decided, well, we'll use Ruby on Rails to build the website. 
actually the initial idea was okay we'll do that but yeah we can still maybe build a Java backend to do these sorts of integrations but once we got started and the other I will also just say that part of the uh, the other part of the project that I think was you know a major piece is that we're we're doing uh, sort of XP and, and agile uh, and iterative uh, uh, process so you know we, we got started developing very early on uh, in an iterative and incremental way and so once we started you know learning about rails and and um, and, and Ruby uh, then came kind of clear there's no need. There was no need to, to build out an, a whole other Java infrastructure for what we needed to do. Much of these backend systems are referring to our other websites, websites that aren't publicly available, that are only uh, being used by our customers and, and internal staff members. So, you know, it made sense to also maybe do those as, as rails. Uh, but then even just uh, internal processes as well, it made uh, sense to leverage the, the, the infrastructure and expertise that we had gained over the year to, to build those uh, those internal systems as well. I mean, we could have done those in any other technology, and that would be fine. But again, uh, it, it began to feel like the path of least resistance and uh, a, a valuable uh, framework to just go ahead and use Ruby and, and, and Rails in some cases. So, yeah, 100% Rails, yeah. Yeah. Right, almost. We've got one small library in C. Uh, well, that, that's okay. Yeah, yeah but that's true. But sure. Apart from that, yeah. I think except for four lines of code, everything else. And some shell scripting, and, and, and you know, yeah, there you go, stuff. Like, like any sort of, you know, kind of full, uh, you know, uh, um, an enterprise system, if you will. You know, yeah. There's lots of. I mean, you know. So, you know, it's Linux and, and MySQL, and, and of course, so we've written you know a couple of triggers, and uh, uh, nothing. Is, n none of our logic is in stored procedures right now. But we have a couple of triggers and user defined functions in MySQL and some shell scripting and you know auxiliary stuff like that. But almost the entire system is, is Ruby and Ruby on Rails. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of coordination going from. You know, if, if I'm investing in, uh, you know, if I'm going to buy Apple stock or, or eBay stock, mm -hmm. it, you know, I invest and then that gets down to the trade floor and, uh, you know, a trade is made. Here, you know, you're going all the way across continents and uh, then money gets in the hands of, of people who are going to start these small businesses. Is that whole workflow managed by this kind of application or do you work with other agencies to, to get that? Uh, the investment funds all the way down to the individuals. Primarily, we uh, we manage that through working with our, our partners. So uh, we're working with Calvert Foundation and Oiko Credit, and we continue to also bring on other issuers uh, as, as we grow. Uh, and, and right now, primarily, we're managing that process through our partnership with, with those uh, organizations. Of course, the technology that we've built helps to manage that and we're, we're enabling that relationship through the through the, the infrastructure that we built um, but we we aren't our our system isn't managing that flow of money all the way down to the micro borrower certainly um, we, we, we we really go as far as the microfinance organization in terms of of actually uh, uh, the, the, the information technology if you will um, but uh, but we do work with the the MFIs and um, and of course there's there's borrower information on the site that we um, coordinate with the microfinance institutions to, to provide. Well, definitely, but you know, 
people are always talking about the economy and finance, but even today, news of, you know, record payouts given to uh, financial fund managers, even as the stock market has kind of taken a hit. Do you think that kind of thing makes a better environment for people to be looking for alternate investments uh, such as microfinance, or is this kind of a whole different world uh, that doesn't really intersect with uh, other financial markets at all? Maybe, is what I'll say. I mean, I think it depends. So, you know, I'll I'll sort of reserve judgment on saying whether, you know, microplace is is helped or hindered by what's going on, you know, in broader economic markets. But I would simply say that the way we look at microplace, uh, from, from, from our perspective as a business model, it's what, you know, we've been calling a double bottom line. Uh, company, so we, we do have a small profit margin. We do operate in a profitable way, but at the same time, we we're doing this because it's having a social impact. Uh, when we uh, make these uh, investment offerings to to the public, we're um, hoping and certainly expecting that people look at the investments in the same way. So, sort of regardless of what's going on in the broader economy, although that will always have an influence, our, our real uh, expectation is that people are going to be motivated by the fact that, okay, I can make an investment, it's a sound investment, uh, it's, it's safe, I will earn a return, but at the same time, half of my motivation is the fact that it's having a social impact, that it's actually helping people, and that it's helping people uh, raise themselves out of poverty in a sustainable and effective and an effective way. So, so really, I think those are the motivations. Whereas more traditional uh, investments, where it's all about okay, what's the rate of return, and uh, you know, and, and sort of you know, I have to weigh the risk versus yield. Um, those other investment mechanisms, I think, uh, that's where you would. Uh, Maybe factor in uh, other these these other considerations much more strongly. Now, as a developer, I have to see this, and I see other things like the one laptop per child project, and I think you know w- would these ever in- intersect in ten years, thanks to kids in uh, countries around the world having access to computer resources? Mm-hmm. Would microfinance ever fund an individual? Uh, even in a third world country, starting a technology or web-related business. Do you see that happening in the future? Uh, I think there's absolutely uh, all the potential for something like that to happen, uh, you know, no doubt. Um, I think that you know it, it is an interesting sort of confluence of, of different uh, um, activities that are going on and, and initiatives that are happening. You know, eBay is a supporter of the One Laptop for Child program. Uh, and within eBay, uh, Microplace is part of the Global Citizenship Group. There's a divi- this division of eBay. It's, uh, and these are sort of eBay initiatives that are designed to, you know, help promote global citizenship, being a good global citizen, being, you know, a, a good uh, uh, member of the community, right? And so Microplace is one aspect of that. But one of our sort of sister teams within Global Citizenship is a group called World of Good. Um, and they're uh, uh, going to be promoting uh, sort of an alternate marketplace where where they'll, they'll actually be um, putting artisan goods 
uh, that are for sale. You can find these things right now, but they want to create a very specific marketplace that promotes artisan goods that are being uh, manufactured by uh, uh, people you know, uh, in uh, these communities and regions around the world. And so what we've talked about this before is that you know, there's uh, all the, the potential for a, potent, uh, for a, a prospective micro-borrower who's benefiting from the microfinance organizations that are uh, uh, being helped by Microplace to uh, these people oftentimes are artisans, you know, they're weaving baskets or they're making pottery or, you know, some sort of artisan good, could then also take the, 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 their business online through something like World of Good. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned one laptop per child, that uh, obviously one of the um, uh, incentives behind that program is to allow those sorts of technology opportunities to, to people in developing parts of the world. So, yeah, I definitely think there's a potential for that to happen. So I was saying, uh, we were in Kenya last year for a, for a week or so, where our boss, our manager said, you guys, development team, I mean, everyone had to go, but at that time it was, okay, the development team, you guys need to go pick some country in the world and go see microfinance in action. So we chose uh, Kenya, and we were there for, for a week or so, and uh, so the idea was to, you know, to meet some of these MFIs and the borrowers and everything, and... Uh, and we thought, okay, well, we're going to do that, but, you know, we have this product to launch, so it's going to be quite difficult to do that before we launch. How about we do it right after? And she said, no, 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 we need to do it before you launch, because you need to see how this thing works. That will motivate you even more uh, to see that, you know, what you guys are doing is really good. It really works. Okay, fine, if you say so. So we went there, right, went to Kenya, and uh, we could definitely see uh, people, uh, you know, start with nothing, sometimes really begging, right? In the street, they got a, a $20 loan and they started their own little business selling like food or, or, or fresh sodas or whatever. And uh, they make some money and then you know, go for a bigger loan, maybe $50 this time. And uh, so we, visited some, we saw some of these folks, we talked to them, we went to their houses. And they were telling me, yeah, two years ago I was in the street and now I have my own business and I, you know, I have this... 15 employees now working for me. So all thanks to, uh, to microfinance. Uh, so what, what I was going with that, though, is that we're kind of used to this thing of, you know, Scott, you know, being the spokesperson for us. So we, when we saw some of these MFIs, it was the same model, you know, people would say. So these MFIs would ask us, so tell us about the microplace and everything. And, of course, we had uh, Scott did a great job at, you know, Explaining microfinance or not microfinance because that was one thing that really surprised us was how educated they were, how knowledge they were uh, in, in Kenya at least about microfinance way way more than we are in general here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But anyways, talking about the microplace, you know, Scott did a great job and did that once again today. That's fine. It was incredible seeing how vibrant microfinance was in Kenya. In fact, not only were they well-versed in it, it was, it's a part of life in, in, in Kenya, and uh, they were surprised when we'd said, you know, microfinance is, is kind of new, as a new concept to many Americans. We were just now learning about this over the last year or two. And they, they were shocked. They, they thought, how, what? Because this has been something that's been vibrant, you know, in their uh, 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 community for, for years now. So I'm going to tell the story related to that where I'm, I'm waiting for somebody. I don't know. I'm right outside the hotel waiting for someone. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you. I, I know who yeah. I was waiting for. Anyway, so I'm outside, just sitting there outside. 
and some local person in Nairobi approaches me and says, hey, uh, you want to go for a safari? It's very common, right? They try to sell the safari. So. Like, no, I'm you know, in business, I'm really waiting for this other person, so I, I'm not interested right now. Oh, business, what kind of business? Uh, you know, like, Microplace, um, it's my company, we're here to see some microfinance uh, uh, institutions. I'm, I didn't say it, but I was thinking, I'm sure you don't even know what I'm talking about. And, uh, and they said, oh, you're in the microfinance, you know what? I'm just doing this safari thing to get enough money to start my own uh, microfinance institution. I was shocked. Yeah, a I was shocked. Editor. Well, <laughs> a potential partner. A potential partner. <laughs> yes. Okay. I was shocked that this person you was know, selling you safaris, right, was really trying to gather money to start his own. So for me, it was Nairobi. I don't know if this is true in all around the world, but this Nairobi felt like the Silicon Valley of you know the microfinance, the micro of microfinance, where you have like people you know starting new. Startups and uh, Starbucks or whatever. Well, there they start MFIs on the street. Right? It was very uh, was shocking and and good, I guess, in a way. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine the sort of issues that would bring along with it. I mean, it, you know, the, um, any any time you have uh, such a, a, a swell of people inv involved in any kind of market like that, you'll have uh, you know stability and instability. You'll have good offerings and bad offerings, right? But one of the of the things that most of the microfinance organizations in Kenya that we talked about were very happy about was that the government had just passed just the previous year, so this would have been the end of 2006, we were there in May of 2007, um, a, a new set of uh, 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 legislation that was to regulate the microfinance industry. And so normally you would think, especially in the United States, if you're a business owner and, and somebody says, hey, we're going to start regulating your business, you're like, oh, God, that's the last thing I want, right? But these MFIs were very happy about it because they saw it as, as number one, a signal that the industry within Kenya was really maturing and becoming very viable, but also as, as a way of... Um, Providing confidence and trust to the, to the community that look, this is a this is a real industry. Um, you know, if if somebody starts some MFI and it's some kind of fly by night, you know, situation or if it's a scam or whatever, which which had had happened uh, in in the country from time to time, um, this you know we're, we're going to regulate this. It's it's going to be a real industry that we're going to keep a watch on and 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 put uh, policies in place to protect against that sort of thing. Uh, definitely uh, a sign that, that it's uh, becoming feasible, viable, a real industry, just like uh, you know, financing and banking. Now, some people might say, "Oh, well, that's not good." You know, you know, I don't, I don't, I think banks are you know predatory or, or not good. Well, that's what's different about microfinance. These aren't just banks; these are microfinance institutions. They they provide training. They do this in a sustainable way. They work directly with the borrowers. It was really they, inspiring. They, to they see do how have they a do. social mission. I mean, exactly. most of the time, you know, I we haven't met. I mean, all these MFIs that we've met, none of them were doing this purely for, you know, to make money. Of course, they, they want to make money, but that wasn't the only reason. I imagine when you start a bank, right, if you could start a bank today, you do it just to make money, right? You're not doing it to, to help people or whatever, right? You do it because you're going to make money. Whereas MFIs, they want to make money, but that's not the only, the only reason behind it. And that comes down to what you said, like double bottom line. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Uh, that was uh, the topic of... Uh, Mohammed Yunus's talk yesterday that uh, more companies and individuals have to be double bottom line. Like economists built uh, uh, 
built a theory about an ideal man, which is a money-making machine. And uh, instead of it just being a theory, people started emulating that man, and everyone just wants to be a money-making machine. But that doesn't work in real world. You need to be a social animal too, not just a money-making machine. And so he says lot of people are realizing this and people are st- starting to look at the double bottom line of things be it the green environment or global warming or microfinance and he, he's going around and you know basically talking about this to try and get more organizations more companies uh, you know entities with much bigger pockets to also start thinking about the double bottom line right. and he gave an example of uh, Danon uh, the yogurt and water company in France and uh, how you know he had a talk with them and over lunch they kind of bought into the whole double bottom line thing and uh, s- set up a, 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 a Grameen Dainan partnership in Bangladesh and its mission was uh, to be profitable but not to take any money out of it so that uh, uh, that uh, joint venture is sustainable but uh, the mission was that uh, to apart from uh, making money and being sustainable to address of a very severe shortcoming it's like a lot of children in Bangladesh are malnutri- have malnutrition they don't get the right nutrients so Danin uh, designed a special yogurt in their lab which addresses all the nutritional needs and of course it's sold very very cheap so that so that you know just makes enough money to keep it in business to address this nutritional need and then they went over and above like the con- the packing shouldn't be waste so it should be biodegradable then they said why not go one step forward and make the packing edible too like a poor man can't spend you know, if he's buying a yogurt and if like a third of the cost of the yogurt is in the packaging right. why not make it of something which is edible like a cone like a mm-hmm. you know like an ice cream cone you eat the ice cream and then you eat the cone right. so s- stuff like that uh, it uh, Danon's doing a good thing because uh, you know they're helping the uh, they're addressing the double bottom line thing but there's an indirect benefit to the company too they ended up doing R&D and doing research on stuff which they otherwise would never have thought of and now this could actually become a money making venture uh, in the parts of the world where their business is to make money and not to do social good so it it, it can be a win-win situation for everyone one of the selling points for Microplace one of the the whole reasons that uh, that started with this was that there's there's a demand within the marketplace right now in terms of and by the marketplace I mean investment dollars people are investing you know lots and lots of money today and a significant portion of that uh, money is currently invested in socially responsible uh, investments and then a, a much broader segment of the market are are people you know, like, like us sitting here who are interested but maybe aren't aware of the opportunities for making socially responsible investments. And uh, that's a part of the, the, the group that Micro, Microplace wants to, to go after and say, look, here is an opportunity for you to take some of your investment funds and have a real impact on, on poverty around the world. Even if people are aware, before Microplace, they didn't have too many avenues to invest. Uh, you, you go to Dorsha or any of the big funds and say, okay, here's my $200. Could you channel it to a Microplace? And they laugh you out of the door. It's, I mean, if, if Pierre goes there and writes a check for $20 million, they'll surely entertain him and make it happen. But if someone goes and, here's my $200, make it happen, it won't work. So, the, But when, when like 10,000 people do that, 
then you do have your 20 million or 200 million at that point. And that's what Microplace is trying to do. Aggregate it from people who, who don't have, you know, big funds to give, but lots of small people with small amounts of money.